will turn with me this morning, your copy of God's Word, to James chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to look around you on the seats and find one of the ones that we've provided for you. I think it will be most helpful as we study uh, together that you are able to read along with us. I never want you taking my word for it. Uh, I hope to show you only what the Word of God says. We're going to be in James chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 26 together. Before we read, let's pray. Oh God, we now turn to your word, and so we do so with humility in our hearts, understanding that we can't read and understand it according to ourselves. And so we need your help, and we ask this morning that you would open our eyes, that that the ministry of your spirit would open our hearts, that you would help us to understand the things that we read, that you would provide clarity to the gospel, uh, to the truths of your word. Uh, Not only that we would understand, but that we would be quick and able and ready and willing to apply those truths to our hearts. So God, speak to us now from your word that we might be changed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Well, we had this morning one of the most important discussions uh, regarding the Christian faith that I can possibly think of. Uh, What is discussed in these verses is the central truth of the nature of the gospel, what it is to be saved and how that salvation is brought to be. And uh, we have seen that James has been building up a pretty careful and a pretty clear argument in chapters 1 and then this far in chapter 2. So just by way of review, he's been arguing that a profession to have faith in Christ or to believe in Christ is either substantiated or condemned by the actions that flow from it. Okay, so, and he's been making that argument in a few ways. If you remember back in verse 2, he talked about how uh, when our faith, this professed faith that we have is tested by trials and temptations and tribulations, that one of the ways we know the genuineness of our faith and whether or not our profession to believe in Christ is real is how we respond to those trials. And then beginning in verse 19, he began also to give a different 
uh, illustration when he said, listen, it's not just how you respond to trials, but if you claim to believe in Christ, do you do his word? And so he begins to compare. There are those who hear the word of God and do not do it. They hear it and they say they believe, but then there are those who hear the word of God and then they become doers. They hear and they do. And, and, it, is the, and, and it is for James and our doing uh, that, that our faith is substantiated, that it, is, that it becomes the evidence of the professed faith that we have. And then he begins in chapter 2 by picking a particular sin. It is a particularly uh, grievous sin because it shows our lack of understanding of the gospel. If, we, if you were with us, you would have seen that. But he picks out the sin of showing partiality so that if someone comes into our midst, if someone comes into our fellowship, if someone comes into our churches, uh, if two people... One who is rich and looks wealthy and looks like a man of prominence and somebody who might can serve us well and benefit our congregation and give lots of money or whatever the case may be, that that there would be some benefit to us. If we treat them differently than the one who comes in after them who looks poor and destitute, who we judge has nothing to give us, then we have shown this partiality. And he says, listen, the way we respond to others is evidence of the genuineness of our profession to believe in Christ, in part because if we respond with partiality, it shows that we do not understand that the gospel is for the broken, not for the wealthy, that it is for the sick, not for the well. And so he's been arguing very carefully and building this doctrinal argument that our lives, our actions... They, they, they build up and become the evidence of our profession to believe in Christ. His point has been that you cannot profess with your mouth to believe in Jesus, to love and to trust him and to be being transformed by him unless there is some evidence of that transformation of which you speak. Okay, so uh, he's interested then in dealing with some sense of hypocrisy in the church. He's interested in very specifically, he's he's writing to Christians, he's writing to a group of believers, and he is interested in dealing with the central question, is it possible to profess to believe in Jesus, yet to not really believe in Jesus? Is it possible to be a part of the congregation and not to be a part of the body of Christ, spiritually speaking? Is it possible to have all the right answers, yet to really on the inside be a hypocrite? Remember, he talked about those who claim to have received God's grace, yet he is showing that they are those, by virtue of their life, they are those who have received God's grace in vain. You remember that language. If you go back in chapters 1 and 2, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Why? Because it's possible... It's possible to profess to believe and to profess to have received some grace of God and to to be enjoying his grace and receiving his grace and, and to have the right answers and to be a part of the right crowd and yet to have not really received it at all and for your reception to have been in vain because it has ultimately brought no transformation in your life. Now, to be clear, because we don't want to become legalists and this is going to be where our sort of jumping off point is for this morning's lesson as James is going to, we're going to have to interact some with Paul's teaching about the doctrine of justification by faith, by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. But to be clear, it is not the life or the actions of any of these 
In any of these situations that James has been arguing so far, it is not the life or the actions or the obedience that saves anybody. And that's not what James has been arguing. Uh, It is not that by the absence of these things, he is saying that if you do not do these things, then you can somehow lose a salvation that was previously there or a transformation that was previously there. He is simply arguing that the actions on the outside show what is on the inside. They do not merit or create anything on the inside, but they are the evidence of what is what is on the inside. And he gives the, you know, we talked about a tree and the fruit that the tree produces so that certain types of trees produce certain types of fruit. And if a, uh, and if a stalk and some leaves produces an apple, its production of the apple doesn't make it an apple tree. It is an apple tree. And we know that we know the inward reality of the tree based on the fruit that it produces so that the, the apple is present to speak as the evidence not to condemn it, but to substantiate its claims to be an apple tree. And that's the sense in which James is using all of this language. Not to say that anybody is saved by their works. Not to say that the absence of their works is somehow going to lose their salvation for them. He's saying the problem is that if you live a life of complete disobedience and there's no transformation evident in your life, then the profession that you have to believe in Christ and to have been transformed by Christ is simply a false profession. The problem is not that you've lost anything. It is that you've not been transformed at all. And he's going to move. He's going to tighten the lens down then a bit. He's going to focus in even farther in our lesson this morning. The same theme will continue, but no longer is he just going to talk about what we profess with our mouth. He's going to talk about the nature of the inward reality, the faith that is present in our hearts. And give us a way to know whether or not that faith is real. But before we go any further to expound upon or to think about together exactly what it is that James is telling us in these short verses, and it's actually pretty plain, there is a problem that we must deal with. The question has often been asked both by many Christians who are very confused by this text and especially by many opponents and critics of Christianity and of the Bible. And that is the question, is James here contradicting what Paul argues in Romans chapter 3? If you have a Bible, turn back a little bit to Romans chapter 3. Let's just go look and see what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, listen, if you're, if you're not reading along, listen carefully. Listen to what Paul says. And, and keep in mind what we just read about what James has written. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? 
Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by his faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Then he continues in four. That may be a bit confusing. I'm going to help you here in just a minute. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and his belief, it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, it's very interesting, isn't it, that in the passage we have in James chapter 2, where he is arguing about faith and justification in some respect, that he also makes the same direct quote regarding Abraham and uses Abraham as an illustration for what he is arguing. But when Paul says in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, the question then is, and for those who are confused or who seek to be critical of the scriptures, does that somehow stand in direct contradiction to what James says when he looks and, I mean, when he says, let me get in the right place, You see, in in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I mean, listen, in our plain English translations, there's a problem, okay? And so we're going to have to deal with that problem. They are not contradictory, so the short answer is no. And friends, if for no other reason, let me give you this encouragement. The word of God, because it comes from God who is perfect, cannot be contradictory. So the place we begin our study and understanding of these passages and how they relate to one another is with the simple admission that if they seem contradictory, the problem is with my inability. For when God's word became print, it was subjected to our sin and frailty. We abuse the word of God, don't we? We mistreat the word of God. We misunderstand the word of God. We misuse the word of God. We take out of context and distort the word of God. And anytime there seems to be a contradiction, we must understand that because God is God and right and true and holy and good and light and perfection, that his word cannot be anything other than what flows forth from himself. So that it's not an option for us to stand back and say, well, uh, it, it looks like a contradiction. And so, you know, the Bible just seems to be confused and contradicting itself. And James and Paul seem to be at odds with one another. The short answer then is no. But I think if we carefully consider two things, two areas of this text, then it becomes abundantly clear. And I'm going to show you this morning that there is no contradiction at all. It's not even an apparent contradiction. It's a lack of understanding on our part. The first thing we have to consider is the context. The context into which these men were writing, okay? Both Paul and James are offering in their texts a corrective. They are seeking to correct a current misunderstanding in a certain group of people. They are writing to two completely different situations, and they are seeking to correct two completely different misunderstandings. So on the one hand with Paul in the book of Romans in chapter 3, he is dealing with the issue of Jews who think that their standing before God, their righteousness before God, their salvation before God is based on the fact that they're Jews. That there is some external reality in their life 
Whether it's a work of the law, whether it's by virtue of their birth, whether it's their circumcision, that they somehow have a better place to stand before God based on these external realities than do the Gentiles. That's why all that language was there in Romans, I mean, yeah, in Romans chapter 3, as he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. 29, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles? Paul is defending and correcting the misunderstanding that anybody, based on external circumstances or realities, has any more of a standing before God than any other person. He is building up the doctrine that all men have fallen short of God's glory, that all men are sinners, and that all men need the gospel and need to be saved, and it is only going to come justified with God by grace through faith in him. If you go back just a little bit from what we read in Romans chapter 3, in verse 9 he says, what then? Are Jews, us, any better off, that is, than the Gentiles? What does he say? No, not at all. Then he goes into his famous the famous verses, for there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. For all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you see what Paul's point is? Paul has been building up a doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone for those people who did not think that they needed it. He is correcting their misunderstanding that based on some external reality, apart from faith, aside from faith, that they could somehow be saved because they were Jews or because their mom and daddy started the church or because they went to church every week or let's, you know, put it in our terms or because we pray before every meal or because we try to tell our kids about Jesus. You know, we we show up on Easter and Christmas or, you know, my daddy is a fifth generation deacon at the church where I now attend. I mean, whatever the external circumstance is, Paul is dealing with the same misunderstanding in his writing in Romans. So that he is answering the question, on what basis are sinful men made righteous before God and giving a standing in his court? How is anyone made righteous? Do you see that? It's not by being a Jew. It's not by keeping the law. It's not by going to do, it's, it's not by anything. He is going to say then, the Jews are not any better off than the Gentiles because the only way that anyone is justified, declared righteous in a judicial sense before God is by grace through faith. They're faith only. And so he uses the example from Abraham in Genesis fifteen six, where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was his belief that it was reckoned or accounted to him for righteousness. So that's Paul's interest. He is interested in clarifying what the gospel is and who it is for and how salvation is brought to those people. So he's dealing with the nature of the gospel, that Everyone needs the gospel, and the only way anyone is declared righteous is on the basis of their faith. Now, let's consider then James's circumstance. On the other hand, James is not dealing with a group of people who thought they were saved based on external realities. It's actually interesting. It's the exact opposite. He is correcting a misunderstanding that there were those Christians who thought that they did not have to have any of the external circumstances, the pendulum swing completely to the other end of the spectrum, who said, oh, well, you know, I believe in Jesus, and I say I believe in Jesus, and that's good enough. So that they claimed, they professed to have a faith somewhere deep down in their heart, but goodness knows nobody could see it. 
Nobody could experience it. It brought about no action and no transformation in their life. They thought they were saved, not based on external circumstances, but based on some false inward reality where they said, well, because I believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter if I keep the law because I have Jesus deep down in my heart. Right? It's just me and Jesus. I don't have to go to church. I have Jesus right here. I don't need God's people. I have Jesus right here. I believe in Jesus, and it doesn't matter if you can see it or if you can tell. Right? We all know people like that. Invite someone to church who you don't think is a believer, and, and you, may, you may encounter some of this as well. But do you see that it's actually the exact opposite? And he is seeking, James, in these verses to correct a completely different issue. And the issue is not the nature of the gospel, but it is a hypocritical application of the gospel. That people are using the gospel of justification by faith alone to justify their lawlessness and sinful disobedience. So one is dealing with who is to be saved and how they are to be saved, who the gospel is for and what the gospel is. And James is dealing not with what the gospel is, but with what the gospel looks like in the life of those who claim to believe it. Do, Do you see that it's a completely different circumstance? So that when Paul uses the word, we are justified by faith, he means in a judicial declarative sense that we are justified or made right. We are declared judicially righteous before God. James does not mean it in that same sense. And friends, this is not a problem. Do we not have words that we use with different semantic ranges all of the time? I mean, my son's name is Brown. That's weird, I know. It's also a color. It can be either. And we must be careful when we use language to understand and give credence to the context into which the language is given. And friends, the word justification, both in English and in the original context and the original language, it has a broad semantic range. It can mean being declared judicially righteous, and it can also mean being vindicated. So that being justified does not mean that it actually that it is the agent or the means that something justifies me. It is the thing that creates the righteousness in me. That's what Paul means, that God has done that and that faith is the agent. It can also mean that in our faith, we are vindicated or justified by our actions in our faith. Does that make sense? So that the faith we profess to have is substantiated or vindicated or justified by the life that we lead or friends, it can be condemned. So they use justified in a completely different sense because they have a completely different agenda. They are writing to correct a completely different problem. So the context is crucially, crucially important for their argument. Paul is interested in establishing what the gospel is and who it is for. James is interested in articulating what the gospel looks like in the lives of those who have been made righteous by it. For Paul, the word justification means something totally different than it does for James. One means to be declared righteous. The other means to be vindicated in the faith that declares us righteous. Second, let's consider the content. You don't just have to take the contextual understanding. Friends, if you just study the actual words that are here, especially in James, it becomes abundantly clear what James means. Let's consider the language. Let's go to verse 14, the very, the very first verse as he begins. Look at what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Notice that James' question is not whether or not faith saves, 
but whether or not any particular man really has it. Now, that, you may say, I'm being, that's, you're just arguing semantics. You're correct, because they're very important. Paul is arguing whether or not faith saves us. James understands and assumes here that it does. He is arguing whether or not anybody actually has saving faith. There's a huge difference. He says, look, if someone says, claims to possess this faith, the issue then for James is whether or not the faith is possessed. And then he goes on, look, but he does not have works. Can that faith save him? Now, this is very important. What is the that? What is the that? It is because James is dealing with the possibility for true faith and false faith. It's not, can faith save him? Of course, James believes the answer to that is yes. He understands what Paul says. He understands and knows the writings of Paul in his scripture. Absolutely, faith can save him. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. But he says, can that faith save him? Can that particular faith, his faith that he claims to have, can it save him? So the issue for James then in the context is some certain faith, the possibility that you can have a true faith or a false faith. He's not questioning what saving faith looks like, whether it can save, but whether or not the people who claim to have it actually have it. Let's consider the content further. Look at verse 17 and verse 26. In verse 17, he he goes ahead and gives it right out to us. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, so that there is living, saving faith for James. And there is also dead, hollow, shallow faith. Go to verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is what? Dead. So that for James, there is living faith and there is false faith. There is saving faith and there is hollow, dead faith. None of that discussion is present in Paul because Paul is dealing with what faith is. And James has a different agenda altogether. Now, what about this issue of Abraham? One final thing, and then I am going to get to just some actually preaching this text for you. But it's important that we deal with this. Because if someone comes to you and tells you, well, James and Paul can't agree with each other and the Bible is contradictory, uh, you need to be able to give them some sort of answer. But let's, let's, let's consider Abraham. What's this business about Abraham? James talks about Abraham and Paul talks about Abraham. And actually, if you look in verse 23, James quotes the same way that Paul does. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the same text that Paul uses. It's a quote from Genesis 15, verse 6. But go back to verse 21 to show you not only that I have a different agenda, James is showing something altogether different from Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works, whatever that means, we've talked about that, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, Paul is building a a doctrine of justification by faith based on Abraham's belief and it being counted to him as righteousness from Genesis 15:6. Now James is in complete agreement with that, but James is building up a doctrine that when we profess to have faith, if that faith is real and transforming, it will be evident in the way that we live. It will be our faith. We will be vindicated in our faith by the actions and the obedience that proceed forth. How do we know that? Look, 
Because in verse 21, he references the obedience of Abraham in his willingness to slaughter his son Isaac. Here's the question. Did that happen in Genesis 15? No. It was many, many, many years later. And it's a direct quote from Genesis 22. Because what happened? If you go back to Genesis 22, there's a very fascinating little bit of language there. It says, and God came to Abraham to test him. In Genesis 22, what was he testing? The faith that led to his righteousness that's spoken of in Genesis 15. Do you you see the difference? So So that Paul is talking about the nature of the faith and the righteousness from Genesis 15, and James is dealing with the testing of the faith and whether or not it is condemned as false dead faith or it is vindicated as living and saving faith. And it was evidenced in Abraham when his faith was fulfilled in Genesis 22, when he went in obedience as an act of faith to slaughter his only son according to the commandment of God. Do you see the difference? Friends, the context and the content, they do not allow for any disagreement on Paul and James's part. God's word is right and true, and, and, and it, is, it is in complete agreement with itself if we will only give time and attention to care for these details to understand and know them. Now, what of this text? Well, let's just deal with the text itself. Um, it, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you the way that it's structured, and the way that it's structured looks like this. There's one main point for James. And it comes to us in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. And that point is that useless or dead faith is not accompanied by actions. Or to the positive, living, saving faith is always accompanied by actions. Look at what he says. What good is it if you say that your faith, if someone says that he has faith but he does not have works, can that faith save him? The answer is, The answer is no, because it's not saving faith, it's dead faith. That's where he's getting, that's where he's headed. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and then he's going to give an illustration, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Really nice and compassionate. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? What good have you done? So so then he compares that. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead faith. So do you see, based on what we've spoken of and kind of argued for so far, that he is giving the overarching principle very simply, it's not that hard to understand, that useless or dead faith is faith that does not produce works. It is faith that is not accompanied by works. It, you, can, you can sound good and, and be warmed, go in peace, be filled, but, but you haven't actually done anything. You know how you know what you believe? You know, Every one of you, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt, you believe in chairs. Because you've plopped your hind end down in one. And you're trusting it to hold you up. Every one of you believes that your car, at least to some degree, is going to get you where you intend for it to go. Maybe not perfectly. Potential for problems, but you believe it. You know how I know that? Because you got in it and drove here this morning. Friends, we can say all day long that we believe in Christ. But if we don't ever plop down in that chair, do we really believe what we say we believe? That, that's, what, that's what James is arguing. And his overarching principle then, the first point is that dead faith or useless faith is faith that is not accompanied by works. It's empty faith. It's the faith of words. Yes, I believe in the power of chairs, but absolutely not. I'm not about to sit in it. Now, 
What he does then, that's the first, he gives the overarching principle. And then what he's going to do is he's going to give two illustrations, one to the negative and one to the positive. First to the negative. That unlike living faith, dead faith is that faith like the faith of the demons. This is staggering. We just preached all the way through Mark's gospel, didn't we? A fascinating study because one of the things that you find there is what? That one of the only groups of people in all of that book that know who Jesus is and that have a good theology and understanding of the deity of Christ are the demons. Remember when he crossed over the sea and he set foot out onto the dry land with the the man who was possessed by the legion of demons? What did the demons do? The man ran over to Jesus. He didn't say a word. His foot hit the beach and he ran over to Jesus and he fell down before him and he said, what have you to do with us, son of the most high God? The demons believe. The demons know who Jesus is. They do not deny his deity. They do not deny his power. And they come and bow down before him, not because they believe and love him, uh, but because they know his power and they understand who he is. Look at what James says. For those of you who say you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. My faith In my faith, I will be vindicated by my works. You believe that God is one? He, he's, now, he's now telling them, okay, so you claim to believe, you profess to believe, you do well. <laughs> Even the demons believe and tremble or shudder. Do you see what he's saying? The demons are not saved. The demons will not be redeemed. The blood of Christ is not covering the demons, which means you can believe even to the extent that the demons did. You can run over to Jesus and fall down before him and say, what do you have to do with me, son of the most high God? You can have a right theology about who Jesus is and still be lost. You can profess to believe in him, but if your belief is like that of the demons, then it's not saving faith. What was the difference? Because whatever belief the demons had, It did not lead to life transformation. Do you see that? The demon's faith was not vindicated by their life of works. It was condemned by their disobedience. That's the illustration that he's making. So the first is to the negative, but the second is to the positive. He's going to say, well, this is what saving faith doesn't look like. But then he's going to turn to Abraham and Rahab. And he's going to say, this is what saving faith does look like. Look at what he says. Was not Abraham in in verse 21? Was not Abraham our father justified by works, that is, vindicated, as he took Isaac to the altar? In obedience, faith, was he not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. His faith was completed, brought to fulfillment. Look, and the scripture was fulfilled that said back in Genesis 15... Abraham believed in God. James doesn't deny that. And his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It is later in verse chapter 22, as an act of his obedience, when his faith was tested, that the scriptures were fulfilled and that his faith was completed. That's plain. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified, vindicated in his faith by works and not only by his faith. That is, by his empty faith, by faith alone that doesn't do anything. And in the same way, he says, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? You remember that story with Rahab the harlot where the spies went into the city and she took their word and had faith and listened and acted and 
It was evident what she believed because of the actions that followed. Using that as an illustration. And then he gives one final one. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead. See, they're inseparable. So also faith apart from works is dead. Friends, my encouragement to you this morning is, in spite of all of the technicalities of, of this text and of this sermon, friends, James is giving us a way to test our faith. Listen, our obedience will never be perfect. Our lives will never be perfect. Not in this life. We will never be sinless and our obedience will not be completed. But friends, if you look at your life and you claim, I meet people every day. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Friends, if you claim and profess to be in a relationship with Jesus, James is saying simply look at your life if you want to know if that profession is true. He's the king of transformation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new things have come. He's taken out our hearts of stone. He's put in us a heart of flesh. Friends, James is simply articulating, yes, we're justified by faith. But friends, we're only justified by saving faith, real faith. And that faith is faith that works. It produces transformation in our hearts and in our lives. Friends, look at your life. If it's empty and devoid of works, repent. Trust in Christ today. Cry out to him. Run, run to the cross. All that's required for salvation is faith. Christian, if you look at your life and there's evidence there, but maybe it's waned a bit. The obedience is just a little bit of tarnish where it used to shine bright. Friends, turn to Jesus. Repent. Let us be obedient. Let us live lives of holiness and piety like James talked about. That our faith would be vindicated by our works. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you that you have saved us by grace through faith in Christ alone. But Father, thank you also that that is a complete salvation. That it is not only a salvation for one day. But it is not only a redemption for one day. It is not only transformation for one day to come. God, thank you that according to your grace at work in us, you transform us today and now. So, God, I pray that you would help us to hear these words of James, to help us understand them the way that, the way that you've given them, not, not to see any contradiction in the word of God, But, Father, to be able to look at our lives and to test the genuineness of our faith, to be able to see that Abraham's faith was vindicated in the test that he received and later with his son Isaac. God, as we face temptations every day and testing every day, God, may we be, may we be approved. May we be found righteous. God, I pray that your spirit would work in each of our hearts, that he would expose the unrighteousness that exists and remains. God, that we would repent and turn to the cross. Father, if there is someone here this morning that's been convicted because they have professed for maybe many years to believe in Christ, but that profession has been empty, it's it's not resulted in obedience and transformation. 
God, may they see that, that you can have faith, but it can be dead faith. And, and may they turn to Christ and find living and abiding and saving faith in him. Father, teach us your word, but God, teach us obedience. May we rest in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross, and may we live according to our calling in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.